Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. So Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, we are continuing through this, this narrative of the life of our Lord. And, and last week, as you recall, Jesus uh, was invited to dinner by a certain Pharisee. And he had some, uh, some severe woes or indictments to not only the Pharisees, but also the lawyers, the scribes, the legal experts of Jesus' day. And now this episode comes shortly on the heels of this, of this dinner. And Jesus is in the presence of not only his disciples, but thousands, thousands of people uh, that make up this, this crowd that's before Jesus. So Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever is said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill a body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May uh, this word be written upon our hearts this evening. Well, this last week as I was reading, preparing uh, this text, I came across a, a quote by a certain theologian that I thought was quite insightful. He says that we worship most what we fear most. We worship most what we fear most. Now, of course, what he means is not that we actually worship the fear, but rather the fear illuminates or points to that which we worship. So if someone has a, a paralyzing fear of death, it's not as if they're worshiping death. They may be worshiping their health, their well-being, their life. As I've already mentioned, our call to worship, as we look out into our own society and culture, there's lots of fear amongst everybody, whether you're on the left or the right or somewhere in the middle politically, there's lots of fear. There's fear of getting sick. There's fear of the loss of political freedom. There's fear of economic collapse. There's fear of environmental collapse. There's 
especially for us as Christians, the fear of, of, of lo- losing, as, as one author puts it, that thinly veiled Christian order which we have enjoyed so long in this country. There's fear all around us. But then when we bring it closer to home, we all have our own personal fears. As we think about the context of our own lives, the circumstances of our loved ones, as we think about our own future, there's lots of things that fill our heart with, with fear and, and with anxiety. And fear is closely a tie, tied to our desires. So in one sense, you could think of fear as, uh, as those things which impinge upon the attainment of your desires. So you fear those things which get in the way of you attaining your desires. So why do we fear death? Well, we fear death because we desire life. Why do we fear the opinions of others? Because we have a desire to be accepted in the eyes of others. Why do we fear the loss of, of income? Because we desire to provide for ourselves, for those uh, who we're responsible for. Why do we fear the loss of political freedom? Because we desire rights, our rights to be protected. And the list can go on and on. We fear those things which get in the way of the attainment of our desires. And as many of you probably know, the more we live, the more convictions we have, the more people we care about, the more people we love, and therefore the more potential we have to be fearful, to be anxious. And so what do we do with this fear? What do we do with this anxiety which grips our heart? One answer could be, well, we could just not care about anything. We could not desire anything. We could just be apathetic about everything and not really get too worked up about anything. But that doesn't seem to be the right right answer. Well, Jesus here in this passage begins to answer the question related to this issue. And the answer that Jesus gives us is that we are to battle these many fears that we have on a horizontal level with a greater fear. And that fear is the fear of the Lord. And we develop this fear of the Lord. It's not necessarily that all these other fears go away, but they're put in their proper context. And so this evening, I I want us to uh, consider the ways in which Jesus describes the fear of God in this passage. I believe he, he points us in three directions. So three descriptions of the, of the fear of God. And to begin with, we see that the fear of God is view, uh, fearing God more than other people or even our circumstances. And we see that in the first five verses of, of Luke chapter 12. Well, last week, as I mentioned, Jesus was invited to dinner by a certain Pharisee, and he accepts his invitation And at this dinner party, he has some strong words for the Pharisees, for the scribes, for the lawyers, the legal experts of of the day. These these men were professional law keepers, as it were. And Jesus issues these uh, six woes, condemning them for breaking the law, uh, condemning them for failing in essentially their profession. And shortly after this dinner, we we hear that thousands of people were gathering around Jesus like hungry cattle to the trough, trampling one another. In the midst of this scene, Jesus turns to his disciples and and instructs them. And Jesus uh, turns to his disciples and he warns them of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. 
And he equates the hypocrisy of the Pharisees to that of leaven or yeast. If we think, uh, think about what, what leaven does, and, you know, or yeast does in a, a lump of, of dough, it, you know, a small amount is able to affect the whole. And it does so in an inconspicuous manner. And furthermore, at the, when you first put uh, yeast into, into the dough, it, it seems hidden. You don't really know whether it, it's in there or not. It, it's only revealed later when the dough rises. In a similar way, Jesus is warning the disciples not to let the hypocrisy of the Pharisees affect them, to rub off on them. And furthermore, he, he tells them that even though their hypocrisy may seem to be hidden in the, in the here and now, it will become manifest. Even though they're, they're shining outside of the cup and making it look beautiful and the inside is hidden, there's a day coming when the inside will be exposed. And in verse 3, Jesus refers to the private rooms. That which is said in, in the private rooms. The private rooms was the most inner, the, the most inner part of a home, a villa in in. Uh, first century Rome, and he's saying that which is spoken in the most secret place of your, of your home will be proclaimed among the, the rooftops. And here Jesus is referring to the, the second coming, the final judgment. When for all those who are outside of Christ, everything will be laid bare. All one's thoughts and deeds and secrets will become manifest, not just to others, but to a holy and just and righteous God. And then continuing in this line of reasoning in verses 4 through 5, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is presenting for us a very basic point. He says that we are to fear God and not to fear others or even circumstances. And, and the reason is, is that God has power over our eternal destiny. And others or even circumstances can only affect our temporal existence in the here and now. If you think of our, our lives in the here and now compared to eternity, it's like a, an inch in a marathon. So we are to fear God, who is the, the power over our eternal destiny, rather than, than those who can merely affect our bodies, our temporal existence. Now I'd like to press into this a bit more. So Jesus is saying that we are to fear God more than we fear others, or even, even the circumstances of our life. And as I've mentioned before, desire and fear are really tied together. They're two sides of the same coin. Right? We uh, fear when our desires are infringed upon. Well, God made man with two levels of desires, you could say. We have secondary desires, penultimate desires, and then we have primary or ultimate desires. And these secondary desires are, in a lot of ways, related to our horizontal lives, our earthly lives, our lives in the here and now. We have a desire for community, for companionship. We have a desire to work and enjoy the fruit of our labor. We have the desire to, uh, to do many things. And these are good and natural desires that have been given to us by God. And when something gets in the way of desires, we naturally can feel fear, anxiety. 
But God has also given us these ultimate desires, primary desires. Now, if you think for a moment of our first parents, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were given these earthly, horizontal desires. They had the desire for companionship. They had the desire to work the garden, to protect the garden, to enjoy the fruit of their labor. But God also placed in their hearts an ultimate desire, a desire to be justified before God himself. A desire to be in a relationship with God where there's no possibility of being cast out of his presence. They have the desire to inherit the new creation. Adam didn't just desire to live forever in the garden. He desired the new creation. And for Adam, his horizontal desires, his secondary desires, were not in competition with these ultimate desires, but they served them If he was faithful in his calling to work the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, God would grant him his ultimate desires. He would pass the probation, he entered into the new creation. But what happens when sin enters the world is that which is secondary becomes ultimate. That which is penultimate becomes ultimate. So then we view these desires for earthly things as ultimate, as all that there is. They're an end in themselves. And what happens then is that these secondary desires, which become ultimate, their fears, which should be secondary, become ultimate as well. And they become paralyzing because that's all that there is. And so Jesus is not, Jesus is not saying here that in this life, or to be a Christian, means that you will never taste of fear and anxiety. In a lot of ways, the more people you love, the more people you care about, the, the more you live on this earth, there's, the more potential there is for, for fear. You know, Paul himself expressed anxiety over the many churches. I believe what Jesus is saying here is make sure the desires, the fears of your heart are, are well-ordered. Make sure that which is ultimate is ultimate, that which is secondary is secondary. You make sure that your, your earthly desires and fears are, are indeed secondary and your ultimate fears and desires are aimed at God. Let the fear of God put your other fears into their proper context. So we desire to be accepted by others. Now that's not necessarily a wrong desire, but remember that in Christ you've already been accepted by the God of the universe. That's what matters. We have a desire to work, to develop an earthly inheritance for our posterity. But remember that in Christ you've already been granted a heavenly inheritance. Ultimate desires have been fulfilled in God. And therefore, you've been delivered from all of your ultimate fears. The fear of condemnation on an eternal level, being cast into hell, as Jesus himself says. Remember our declaration of pardon in Romans chapter 8. Paul is quoting Psalm 44. The the psalmist is is suffering, he's languishing, he's saying, "Uh, For your sake, O God, I've been killed all the day long. Fear has no doubt filled his heart. Many of his earthly desires have gone Unmet, but yet Paul says, even in moments like that, you can be assured that on an ultimate level, you're completely taken care of. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. But our temptation so often is to flip this ordering, to make that which is secondary ultimate. If you think, for example, even the power of words, temptation is to let the words of those around us influence us 
shape us more than the words of God himself. So easy for us to do that. I think we all would say that we value we value the words of those whom we respect, those whom we admire, those whom we look up to. And so if you think, uh, think for example, if, if you're uh, walking down the street and a stranger uh, is rude to you, belittles you, um, of course that's probably going to ruin your day, but you're going to get over it. That person doesn't know you. You'll shake it off. But if it's your spouse, if it's your best friend, if it's your father, who belittles you, says you are worthless, that's a whole different level. And the contrary is true, too, when it comes to compliments. Now, so often, we view the words of God like the words of a stranger. It's kind of on the periphery. Oh, it doesn't really matter. But the words of other people, that's like the words of our spouse, our best friend. So does God's word shape you, influence you like it should? When you hear that declaration of pardon each week, that in Christ your sins have been forgiven, you are cleansed, you are washed, you are righteous in God's sight, does that shape you like it should? So Jesus says that the fear of God begins by fearing Him more than we fear others and the circumstances around us, that we have a well-ordered heart. Well, after hearing this, one might think that God doesn't really care about our earthly existence, our lives in the here and now, our bodies. But Jesus now turns to tell us that to fear God means that we trust him with our earthly life. We trust him with our earthly life. We're not Gnostics. Gnosticism was a, was a, a heresy in the early church that basically uh, denigrated the human body, denigrated the life in the here and now, and said the soul, the soul is all that matters. And Jesus is not a Gnostic. He doesn't disregard our bodies, our lives in the here and now. Rather, he's telling us that God intimately cares and is interested in your life. So if you look at verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, this is one of the most um, um, rich and memorable verses on the providence of God. In fact, it influenced the authors of our catechism on a number of question and answers when they were uh, writing, writing that document. And here, Jesus refers to a penny. Now, in the ancient world, a penny was one-sixteenth of a denarius. And a denarius, uh, according to one commentator, was roughly the, the day wage for a laborer. So a penny was what you would earn about a half hour's time. So two pennies, an hour's worth of time. That's, that's the equivalent uh, for the average laborer. So this is not a lot of money that Jesus is referring to. And furthermore, sparrows were sold in the marketplace and they were referred to as the diet of the poor. It was the poor who would buy the sparrows from the marketplace and eat them because that's all they could afford. They were so cheap. Thus, Jesus is referring to one of the most insignificant members of creation in sparrows. And the logic of his argument is if sparrows are under God's oversight, care, 
and concern, how much more so are you as his image bearer under his care and oversight? He says, you know, the hairs of your head are all numbered. So catechism uh, commenting on this verse says, not one hair can fall from your head apart from his will and direction. Now, if that is the case, how much more so are the bigger details and circumstances of your life under his oversight? The lesser to the greater. If your hairs are cared for by God, how much more so are the bigger circumstances of your life? As we read earlier in our service in uh, question answer 28 of our catechism, the catechism is seeking to directly apply this passage and many other passages which speak to the providence of God. And it says that we are to be thankful in prosperity, patient in adversity, and confident for the future. That is to say, we are to hear these words of Jesus and respond with gratitude, respond with patience, respond with confidence. I'd like to just briefly comment on on that second statement of the catechism where we are to be patient in adversity. Patient in adversity. Now, where does this patience come from? Well, it comes from the knowledge that God's in control. The knowledge that everything happens according to His will and His direction. Catechism says that everything comes to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's not just the good things. That's even the difficult things, the suffering, the trials, the tribulations that come your way. That Even those things are from the fatherly hand of our God. This means that if God has permitted something to happen, he has already determined how he will work it for good. So if he's permitted it, he's, he already knows how he's going to be turned for good in your life. Now, we don't always know what that good is. We have the general principles of the Word of God, our our sanctification, our conformity to Christ, but beyond that, that's prying into the secret will of God, and the secret will of God is called the secret will of God for a reason. It's secret. We don't know it. But yet, we can remember the cross. The cross, which is the greatest act of evil and the greatest tragedy in human history, but yet God was able to take the greatest act of evil and turn it into the greatest act of good. If he can do that, can he not turn the sufferings and trials in your life for good? This week I was reading uh, John Calvin's uh, writing on providence. Much of what is said in our catechism was drawn from Calvin's institutes on specifically his chapter on the providence of God. And and Calvin talks about how there's really two options one has in adversity or in times of suffering. On the one hand, you can just continue to think upon, ruminate, meditate on the adverse circumstances. And here he's not referring to responsible thinking, but negative meditation. Getting yourself all wound up, becoming anxious, bitter, depressed, hardened. As your mind just is on a loop. So that's one option. The other option, he says, is to lift your eyes up to the God of providence and realize that everything that comes to pass is just, is expedient, is for your good. You know, the sufferings of our life have a way of of hardening us. There's a temptation to grow bitter 
as we walk through these things. Jaded, calloused. And providence. The providence of God is what guards us, softens us. Kelvin goes on to say, he says, I would say that the greatest misery which can befall a man is to know nothing of God's providence. And conversely, that it is an exceptional blessing for him to know it well. To know it well. So I commend that to you. Study, learn. Know God's providence well. And this is one of the, one of the reasons why I love the, the creeds, the confessions, the catechism of the church, especially the Heidelberg Catechism, because it's not just giving us theology, right, ways to think, but it's actually speaking to our souls. And questions like we just recited early in our service, they're helpful to have committed to memory so that we can not only call them to mind ourselves, but minister to others. Learn, know God's providence well. Well, to fear God means we trust him in the circumstances of our life as our almighty God and faithful father. And lastly, we also learn from this passage that to fear God leads us to profess Christ even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. Now these, these last verses in our text, uh, verses 8 through to 12, they're there are a lot of difficulties presented uh, from an exegetical level in, in these verses that we won't be able to delve into this evening. But in verses 8 through 10, Jesus seems to be distinguishing between two types of rejection of Christ. You have more of a momentary rejection and a permanent rejection. Think of the differences between uh, Peter's denial of Jesus and Judas's denial of Jesus. Peter's denial of Jesus was the denial of of one who is a child of God, one who is secure in Christ. And thus Jesus warmly rejects him, I mean, uh, receives him after that failure. But Judas, that was of a different kind. Judas evidenced himself, uh, evidence that he never really had true faith. And then Jesus goes on to refer to this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now this is of course, a lot of ink has been spilt on this phrase, and uh, it no doubt has many difficulties. I mean, suffice to say, it's referring to some sort of persistent, decisive rejection of the Spirit's message about Christ. And one important thing to note is that if one is concerned that they've committed this sin, this unforgivable sin, that's Probably a sign that you have it, because one who's committed this wouldn't have that concern. But the main point in these verses, the main point in these verses that Jesus is, is giving us is that his followers are called to profess Christ when it's hard, when there's a lot on the line, a lot of cost related to that profession. And it's only when we do point one and point two, that is to say, it's only when we have this fear of God above the fear of, of others and circumstances. It's only when we have a fear of God that, that looks like trusting in his fatherly care over our lives. It's only then that we will be in a place to actually profess Christ when it's difficult, when it's hard, when there's a lot on the line. And Jesus, in a lot of ways, was preparing his disciples for what was to come. If you continue to read Luke's uh, books, into his, his uh, Acts of the Apostles, they actually had to put this to the test, put this into practice. 
They had to profess Christ when it was hard, and as a consequence, they suffered much persecution. They, many of them even, it cost them their lives. Professing Christ was not an easy thing to do in the early church. They didn't live in a culture where Christianity was, was a dominant religion, a dominant worldview. It wasn't given legal, social, cultural benefits. In many ways, I think this is the world that we are beginning to inhabit. Of course, we're not there, but Christianity does not have the dominant place it once had centuries ago. And thus, we are called. We are called to develop this fear of God so that we can profess Christ and continue in that profession, even when it's hard, even when it seems as if the gates of hell are militating against us. And Jesus ends with a very comforting note, reminding us that we are the recipients of his Holy Spirit. And it's his Spirit who gives words and will give words to his disciples when they are brought into synagogues and courts and have to give a testimony, account of, of their trust in Christ. But yet we still have the same Spirit who gives us words to say, who strengthens and sustains us through our sufferings, trials, and afflictions. And so, beloved in the Lord, brothers and sisters, Jesus here in this passage is calling us to fear God. And let this fear quiet the noise of the, the many other fears and anxieties that are going on in your heart. So let us pray.